0: Okay, so this morning we are looking at what, in my way of thinking, is a lovely little lecture in that it's nice and tidy. Um, It's a way that something that can be simplified quite easily but also has some kind of complicated bits of depth in it. So I was thinking this morning this is probably going to be a good exam question. So let that be a key to be awake. So we are looking today at the sources of moral theology, Um, meaning when we study moral theology, what do we draw from and how do we draw from it? And the most basic answer to that is to say, well, moral theology is a part of theology, so we draw from the same sources as theology. But that isn't quite true, because in moral theology we do have some quite particular ways of drawing on those three sources. And in particular, we use philosophy, reason, in a way that theology generally doesn't do. Um, so, let me start with a mind map. So, everything comes from God. God reveals himself, revelation. What is revelation? It's God speaking. Have you studied Revelation yet in any theology courses? Salvation history. Okay, so and so that's in the context of the Bible, um, but you haven't done it as theology, I'm guessing. Okay, right. So, when God speaks in Revelation, um, He has two ways of speaking. He speaks naturally. So, when you look out the window there. And you see the beauty of creation. And you see the order and structure of all the different things. The times, the seasons. God is teaching you. God is speaking naturally all the time. That's one of the ways revelation happens. So in older schools of theology, they would talk about natural theology. All the things that we can know by nature, um, which we can also call philosophy um, in more usual Catholic parlance. So, what might we know? We might know, what might God teach us? Um, He might teach us that God exists. Now more complicatedly, he also teaches various things about the moral life that philosophy alone, reason alone, even without the Bible, is able to figure out. So the fact that abortion is wrong, or divorce. um, Naturally, we are capable of knowing these things, even if you don't have the Bible, even if you don't know Jesus. So all this is what we call reason, um, or more technically, as a category, philosophy. So that's one way that God speaks to us, that he reveals himself. But he also speaks supernaturally. Um, So on Mount Sinai when God appeared to Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments that wasn't a natural thing that was happening that was a supernatural act of God in which he spoke and he said things So beauty of the cosmos, order of the cosmos God is speaking there but he also directly, supernaturally speaks as well Um, so everything we have in the Bible for example the whole salvation history laid out there is the record the history of God speaking supernaturally and as a consequence of everything that's in there we have kind of given to us same way that in the bank you'd have a deposit in the bank we have what's called the deposit of faith This is a phrase from um, one of the epistles, we'll note in a minute. So there's this deposit that's given once for all 2,000 years ago. Supernatural. But how does that come to us today? Well, three ways. Um, The tradition. The tradition hands it down to us down through the centuries, the Bible as the definitive written expression there in the beginning of those things that happened, and the magisterium of the church as the authoritative voice guided by God to hand us all on. So we have three things here together. And, note this, the three examples I said here that you can know by reason and philosophy, you can know the same way, this way. That God exists, because he's shown himself in the Bible, that abortion is wrong, that divorce is wrong. So, the same thing, you can know two different ways. Now, when you, today, receive that deposit this is what we call the act of faith I recognise that God has spoken and I choose to accept what he has said so if you say to a friend, you know, your friend comes in and says this amazing thing happened to me today and he says the whole thing and you say I don't believe you you don't have faith in what he said." You don't have faith in him. Whereas if he comes in, tells you what happened, and you say, I believe you, and you accept what he has said, this is an act of human faith, trusting the witness, and therefore accepting what he's said. That's the same process with supernatural revelation and the act of theological faith. And so we come to faith, not philosophy. And theology, yes, do you all know the definition of theology is faith-seeking understanding? So what is received from tradition, the Bible and the magisterium, we accept it in faith, but the process of understanding it is theology. So here we have a transmission of what God has said, and here we have the reception of what God has said. Either saying things naturally or saying things supernaturally. And. You down here, you don't either have a philosophy brain or have a theology brain. You as one unified individual have both of these ways of thinking and processing. And so you receive what God has said in these different ways of that being handed on. Questions? Can you say that last part you just said
1: just now, but the,
0: the you? That's a good question. Can I say it? Um, so, the point I was wanting to make is that these are two rival things. That you as an individual can know things both of those ways. But you're a single person. So I might know some things by reason and philosophy. I might also know them by theology. So let's, let's take that example of God exists. So if you've done your philosophy course on the existence of God, have you? Not all of you? Okay, right, so you don't know God exists yet. <laughs> um, and kind of the point I'm making is actually, obviously you know God exists, but you don't know it by philosophy. So there are different ways we can know the same thing. Um, the point I was going to make is actually in reverse, that when Aristotle knew that God existed, he knew him as the prime mover, as the first cause, and so forth. He knew lots of things about God that were true, but he didn't know, in a sense, God himself, as he reveals himself supernaturally in Jesus Christ. Yeah, so the same thing, god exists you can know in different ways and in different depths but it's the same you knowing it and so in moral theology you might know something like divorce being um, abortion being wrong but the christian understanding of that has a depth has a nuance has an appreciation that someone who only has philosophy won't have. Okay, so that's kind of a ten minute summary of the whole lecture down the board. Okay, so we're now going to look through all of this um, more slowly and in more depth. So, if you turn to the first page of the So the title of the lecture is The Sources of Moral Theology, Scripture, Tradition, Magisterium What we draw from as we're studying our subject And the key points I say there is that Moral theology is a branch of theology And therefore it uses Scripture, Tradition, Reason, and the Magisterium As theology does So we need to start at the beginning, revelation. Um, In the incarnate word, God has said everything he has to say. Um, Josh, can you read the quotations from the catechism there? In
1: the incarnate word, God has said everything he has to say. The son is his father's definitive word, so there will be no further revelation after him. Christ, the son of God, made man, is the Father's one perfect and unsurpassable word. In him he has said everything. There will be no other word than this one. In giving us his Son, his only word, for he possesses no other, he spoke everything to us at once in, his, in this sole word. And he has no more to say, because what he spoke before to the prophets in parts, he has now spoken all at once by giving us the all who is his Son. All
0: right. Now that's a hugely significant passage in the catechism. Um, Would you have done that in the section, the course on the catechism? Um, Yep, okay. One of the key points for us as moral theologians is to realize he has nothing more to say. He said it all. So when we study moral theology today, we can't look for God to say something new to drop out of the sky. He said everything he has to say. We have to seek to understand what he said in terms of how it applies to something new in our context. Okay, and then the transmission of that revelation. So that revelation was 2,000 years ago. The deposit of revelation is transmitted both by tradition and by scripture. And so um, the Catechism, um, which is also quoting De Verbum of the Second Vatican Council, takes us back to the Epistle of Jude and refers to the deposit of faith that I've already referred to. If you think of that as an image, this deposit in the bank. The church is always going to the bank and drawing out from it. We don't have a a new bank that we create. We've got that one deposit. Okay, over the page. So basically what we're now going to do is we're going to look at each of these three elements, tradition, Bible, the magisterium, and reason. So first page two, tradition. Um, So the revelation of the incarnate word is not confined to the Bible. But in the catechism, the Christian faith is not a religion of the book. Christianity is a religion of the word of God, a word which is not written, not a written and mute word, but the word is incarnate and living. So, one of the ways to think of this is, um, revelation was being transmitted before the New Testament scripture was written down. Well, how is it being transmitted? by tradition. So St. Paul says, stand fast and hold to the traditions which you have learned, either by word or by an epistle. So when the Protestant says, sola scriptura, just the Bible, well, you know, what did the Christians believe before the New Testament was written? Um, well, they believed what was handed on to them, tradition. So you know the word tradition means traditio to hand on. So something is handed on from the apostles that heard it to those they met. They have handed it on and handed it on down through the centuries. That's what the word tradition means. Okay, I want to make a distinction, as they do on the page there, between tradition with a capital T and tradition with a small T. So, capital T tradition means the whole package, everything. The total transmission of the faith that occurs via many particular small t traditions. And in this sense, tradition with a capital T is what we call a source of the transmission of revelation. So, how do I find revelation? Well, one of the places I find it is in the tradition with a capital T. But whereas the Bible is in a single book, capital T tradition isn't in a single place. It's in dozens, thousands, millions of places in the life of the church, in the handing on of the church. So when I was taught the rosary as a child, I was handed on, traditioed, a whole package of things Not just how to say the rosary, but there's all kinds of things that I learnt by being given this. So how does the revelation get handed on in the life of the church? Well, not just one thing and that thing, but a thousand, a million different things are all this living body, the life of the church, handing on things all the time. So, small tea traditions. Customs, prayers... Hymns, words, the examples of the saints, the writings of the saints, the writings of canonised theologians. But, as I say here, no single small-t tradition can be pointed to as encapsulating the whole of Revelation. So, you know, we call the rosary the summary of the gospel. But it isn't the whole gospel, the summary of it, a precious thing. You know, the prayer our lady asks us to say. But it isn't the capital T tradition. It doesn't say everything. So to have everything, you need all of these living small T traditions. And down the centuries, some of those small T traditions kind of die out. And new ones arise. But this living entity that is the church is always handing things on like, passing them on via small t traditions. Do you understand that concept? The difference in capital T tradition, the whole package, and lots of small t traditions that are how it's handed on. And that no single small t tradition is everything. So both my notes here sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God. No, a single deposit of faith, not two isolated deposits. The two together make up this deposit. So you, you can't read scripture without the tradition. So in conclusion, moral theology, our subject, the source we're considering here, must use tradition and draw on small tea traditions especially drawn previous moral theologians. So, if studying moral theology, I want to know the right way to live about something, well, I look to how people, Christians, have lived before me. And if I'm proposing to do something that no Christian has ever done before, well, that's pretty unlikely to be the right thing. So, traditio, handing on. This is one of the ways what God has said is passed on to us. Okay, scripture, page three. So, scripture must be used to study more theology. Theology is the study of God's word, and scripture is the Privileged, written expression of the Word of God. So, quoting Scripture itself, everything in the Scripture has been divinely inspired and has its uses to instruct us, to expose our errors, to correct our faults, to educate in holy living. And to quote what I quoted last week as well, Vatican II said special attention needs to be given to the development of moral theology, its scientific exposition should be more. Thoroughly nourished by scriptural teaching. So we're directed when we study moral theology to look to the scriptures. This is one of our sources. So what does scripture give us for studying moral theology? Well, I list a few things there. It gives us the Ten Commandments, gives us the golden rule do unto others as you have them do unto you. It gives, particularly in St. Paul's letters and in the Proverbs, lists of virtues. It gives us examples of good living, like the faith of Abraham, with a loyal friendship between David and Jonathan. And then it gives us broader things. I so said they're like the context for our moral life, so family life, so that we can understand marriage by looking to examples of marriage in the Bible. So, all of that is what marriage, uh, the Bible, gives us. But we have some problems. So I know what scripture doesn't contain. It doesn't contain definitions. So it refers to virtues, but it doesn't define them. It refers to chastity, but it doesn't define chastity. Then it doesn't refer to things that we'd find in modern science. So IVF is just not referred to in the Bible. So that's a problem. And um, it contains few specific laws regarding moral practice so if you're wanting a tidy list of do this, don't do that must do the other um, actually the bible doesn't have that much tidily written out then I say even worse, scripture contains to confuse us superseded Old Testament dietary laws like the command not to eat pork Superseded marriage laws, like the Mosaic permission to divorce and remarriage. It then has bad examples, without liter- explicitly saying they're bad. You know, like David taking Bathsheba. Then it has confusing examples, like Solomon having hundreds of wives. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. My name is a busy man. Um, is that a good example? Abraham, likewise, had a concubine. Um, now I note that God didn't endorse either of those. Um, so we speak, you're doing salvation history, yeah? So that, or have done? So that the thing about God revealing himself gradually, the things he tolerates in the early parts of the Old Testament, but doesn't comment on, and then gradually as he teaches more, explains more, that includes his teaching of the moral life. So something he doesn't comment on at the beginning, he comments on later. And then sometimes, in case of polygamy, actually forbids at a later stage. So actually divorce, You know, people generally say, well, divorce is permitted in the Old Testament. Well actually the only references in the old testament to divorce are restricting it. So they're not permitting it. They're only restricting how it can happen. Okay. How else is the Bible a problem? It's got confusing science. For example, I say there are allusions to the ancient notion that the embryo was formed out of the menstrual blood of the woman. So, you know, again that's confusing when you're trying to do ma- your moral analysis, and what the Bible's referring to in its scientific exposition. It just doesn't know what's going on in there. And then, this is one of my favourite examples, culturally conditioned practices. So St. Paul's injunction for men not to have long hair. Do you all know the passage? And Paul is amazingly emphatic on this point, um, But what's interesting is there is never in the entire 2,000 year history of the church a saint who says, you need to cut your hair because St. Paul says so. So from the very beginning of the church, that was understood as somehow being culturally conditioned, as being specific to the context he was addressing. Nobody ever later says, the Bible commands you to cut your hair. So, this is one example of how scripture and tradition are an organic unity. And we as Catholics, 2,000 years on, are prevented from saying something silly about cutting your hair by looking to the example of the, the saints down the 2,000 years. I think you're OK on the back. There.
1: <laughs> well, also, unless you're at the Josephine, that's <laughs> a yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: It's a rule, but it's not a yeah, sin. Right, right. Well, that, that's the, the, the thing. It's not a sin. You're being told, we want you tidy, we want you presentable, we want you to conform to the norms of our society, which means that a, a professional-looking man has tidy hair, um, doesn't have a man bun, is I think the explicit thing. <laughs> yeah? um, but not saying it's a sin to have a man bun, which in moral theology is one of our questions. Okay, bottom of the page here, or near the bottom, I have a little section called interpretation. So I say, the ambiguities in the above mean that scripture needs to be interpreted. And I say interpreted by two ways, by the tradition, i.e. how the saints and good theologians have understood it, and by the magisterium, how official church documents have understood it. This twofold need for interpretation Well, that also holds for any other branch of theology as well. So when I'm studying moral theology, when I'm preparing a course, when I'm looking at a new question, I can have a a phrase in the Bible, and I can look at the commentaries on that passage in the Bible. What have the saints said down the centuries? What have the moral theologians before me down the centuries said? And that is a source here of, um, sorry, well, yeah, a mixture really here. I'm interpreting the Bible using tradition. And if I interpret the Bible using what church documents say, like what the Catechism, how it quotes a passage of the Bible, or how the Second Vatican Council quotes a passage of the Bible, I'm interpreting the Bible using those um, the sources. Okay, then my last observation about Scripture, at the bottom of the page, is where I give an example. So, if you want to say adultery is a sin, what would be your basis scripturally for saying that? And I say there are two ways you could approach that. One would be simply a proof text the Sixth Commandment forbids adultery. End of discussion. But you could also theologically use Scripture to consider the nature of marriage in Scripture. For example, Genesis and how it portrays the creation of male and female, one flesh, and so a man shall leave his father and mother and be united. You know, I developed that whole argument from Scripture to conclude that, therefore, adultery is contrary to Scripture. So those are two different ways of making a scriptural argument in moral analysis, a proof text or using the kind of context of, ma- of marriage in the Bible as it teaches. I've been talking nonstop. Um, any questions, comments? Tradition, the Bible?
1: Yeah. I, have a, I have a little bit of a, maybe more of a clarification on a small, Yeah. tradition. So, how does the small t tradition differ from tradition? Because we're drawing big t tradition from little t traditions. It's like a relation between the two. So how is what is the distinction necessarily?
0: It might be a bit like saying that a verse of the Bible isn't the Bible. Right? Yeah, you can't have the Bible right. without That's all those little verses okay. that make Any particular bit is only a bit. The difference between tradition and the Bible is that tradition is continually changing. So it's continually the same because it's handing on the one thing. But because it's about a living entity, it's always changing. And so tradition, with that, is always culturally conditioned. You know, the faith looks different in one country and another. And the fullness is broader than just one country.
1: Yeah, Josh. So you're saying, like what you just said, So like the way the tradition changes is like, for example, the rosary. Mm -hmm. It's like the addition of the rosary is the change of tradition.
0: Yeah. Or just another manifestation of a small tea tradition. So the package somehow remains the same. But it's always all. And the church, in its authority, is always trying to purify and improve tradition. So, when John Paul II added the luminous mysteries of the Rosary, he was wanting to kind of make the Rosary an even better summary of the Gospel by adding these extra five days. No, no, I
1: mean, you can also, like, some of the teachings could be small tea traditions. Teachers, uh, teachings like the church has done, like they develop over time?
0: Yes, so there'd be a sense in which a specific passage of a church document could both be seen as magisterial and seen as tradition, handing it on. And then back to the thing about purifying the tradition. So. when we sing hymns, who's ever sung a hymn that's got lots of heresy in it? Yeah. Um, So down the centuries, the church will forbid and ban certain hymns, saying, you know, this hymn is, you know, anathema sit. um, Because, you know, what the church prays, it believes, so that um, it matters that we pray the right words. Um, but that praise what the church prays, the rule of prayer is the rule of faith, is part of what's being expressed in this notion of tradition in terms of using prayer and liturgy. That that's how it's handed
1: on. Yeah. Can we say that
0: Probably say both, meaning slightly different things. So we don't have a different tradition; it's the one tradition, but we hopefully have grown in understanding. know yeah, that's whole Newman's whole development of doctrine thing. Um, While well, having to bear in mind that we, as individuals, may well understand less than our predecessors. Yes, so tradition, hopefully large elements of it are enriching and developing, um, but there's also the potential for little t traditions to weaken in a culture, um, and so that actually the faith isn't being handed on well, or being handed on partially. Okay, so the revelation, God speaking supernaturally, we've looked at tradition, we've looked at the Bible, Next thing we're going to look at is the magisterium, the, the teaching authority of the church. So, page four. Ah, no, I'm going to... We're going to take a sideways step first on page four and think about natural revelation. Okay. So here we're considering reason and the natural revelation of God's moral law. So I first note, in general, there are two forms of revelation of God speaking. First, supernatural revelation, which is God's revelation by supernatural means. The example I give there, as I said earlier, is um, the revealing of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So that isn't an everyday thing, it isn't a natural thing, it's a supernatural, way of god speaking secondly we have natural revelation god's revelation by natural means for example revealing his existence by the beauty and order of the cosmos that's the wisdom that reflects so natural theology um as i said that's a, usually an older term but it you will find sometimes books referring to natural theology And what they refer to is the study of God's revelation outside of supernatural means, whereas theology usually implies a reference to supernatural revelation. So to clarify what I mean here, if you've got somebody who doesn't have the Bible and they've never heard of Jesus Christ and they've never met a Christian, what are they capable of knowing? about God and about morality. Well, what they are capable of knowing is what we call this category. They have natural knowledge and natural means of knowledge. They've got reason and philosophy. And so one of the points in in our context is actually there's an awful lot that somebody who doesn't know Jesus doesn't know the church there's an awful lot that they can know get back to my notes again next little section there the moral law so having said there are two ways of revelation there are with that two ways in which we can know the moral law so first supernatural revelation so, again, the example of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. But also we might look at the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus speaks. That there he is, God in person, directly, supernaturally teaching about the moral life. So that's an of how supernaturally we can know the moral law. But secondly, there is also natural revelation. What can be known by reason? What can be known naturally? And that's what we call the natural law. You're just naturally able to know it. Okay. Just to clarify the word reason. So as I've defined it here, reason equals everything that can be known without supernatural revelation. So again, don't have the Bible, you've never heard of Jesus, You've never met a Christian. What are you capable of knowing? Reason. That's what you're capable of knowing. That's what we mean by reason in this context. And there are two ways reason functions. Um, a priori. So reason using only first principles devoid of experience. Are you devoid of any knowledge gained by experience? And a posteriori. Reason using knowledge gained by experience. For example, scientific observation of apples falling from trees. So these are two ways philosophy knows things. A priori, a posteriori. And you've done those in philosophy? And I'm really only referring to them here to point out that there's a breadth of different ways that philosophy functions. And all of those together are what we mean by natural knowledge. Okay, so the natural law, back to my notes here. What is it? It's the knowledge of the moral law gained by reason. Now I note that the Ten Commandments can be known by unaided reason, even without supernatural revelation. So the duty to honour your mother and father, You don't need to know the Bible to be able to figure out you should honor your father and mother. You don't need to know the Bible to know that you shouldn't murder and steal and so forth. So the Ten Commandments, the content of them, you can either know just by your thinking and reasoning or you can know by reading them in the Bible. So the natural law is the knowledge of them by reason. I note that natural law is generally a term associated with Catholic moral theology. Um, However, Immanuel Kant deduced his morality with unaided reason. He didn't call it natural law, but you might say that's kind of an example. So Immanuel Kant had his arguments saying that lying was wrong and so forth. That would be an example of a natural law argument he was... He wasn't basing it on the Bible, he wasn't basing it on Jesus, he wasn't basing it on Abraham, just on reason. Okay, the last section on this page, experience, where does experience fit in this? Reasoning a posteriori, to use our philosophical term, uses experience. A posterior, after the fact, I look at experience and I deduce something. Um, well, that's one way of reasoning, and that that means experience is a source of knowledge of the moral law. So I give the example there: experience shows sex outside marriage weakens marriage, and reason can therefore conclude, with a bit of thinking that sex outside marriage is a sin against marriage. Um, Note the warning there, experience needs to be analysed carefully. Yeah, so people often will draw on their own experience and say, well, didn't do anybody harm, didn't do me any harm, didn't do them any harm, so okay to do it again. Um, You've got to analyse experience correctly. You've got to analyse experience not just using your own experience, but the breadth of human experience, if we're studying morality. So when we say that in moral analysis we draw on experience, um, we need to know what we're meaning by that. Human experience generally. So lots of things in our natural law analysis, we are drawing on human experience. We're saying, well, if you look at how human beings behave, if you look at what leads to fulfillment, or in reverse, if you look at what kind of behavior destroys individuals and destroys societies, well, that destruction points us towards the things that are contrary to the natural law. I don't need to find it in the Bible to be able to see that this breadth of human experience shows me, by using my thinking, my reason, this human experience shows me these things are wrong. And in moral theology we do a lot of that type of analysis. So in your theology department, when you're studying Christology, you'll tend not to look at the breadth of human experience to learn about the person of Jesus Christ. But in studying the moral law we do, particularly when we're looking um, at examples of recent things relating to science. So IVF technology, um, sex change operations, We would draw our analysis by looking at human experience and how these things affect people to show us what human nature is and what human action is and fulfilled human action or destroy perverted human action. So experience, so I'm going to add this on the board here. Experience is a big tool, and part of what we're drawing on in natural language. I quote there revelation in natural law natural law is illuminated and enriched by divine revelation so all kinds of things that my personal experience the experience of society can teach me things but I get a better appreciation of it still when the fullness of revelation in Jesus Christ is added as part of that analysis so there's an the same truth that the philosopher can know, the theologian can know with a a greater depth, a greater richness, even when it's the same base truth that you're talking about. Okay. So, conclusion at the bottom of that page. Um, Reason, experience, scripture, tradition, All of these can teach us about what's right and wrong, can all provide sources for moral theology. But I say all four need to be interpreted. So we need to see how they're used by theologians before us, by saints and preachers before us, um, and by magisterial doctrines. Questions, comments? This whole thing about natural revelation, the natural law, things people know without knowing the Bible. So if you've got a friend who is a, not a Christian, but they're doing good they know various good things to do, they're doing that because they possess at least part of the natural law, that they're able to know good, even without knowing the Lord Jesus. Wouldn't it be the case that we all have our ability as well? Have the... Sorry, ability, I mean, for natural... Yeah, and that's part of what we mean by the word natural. That it's it's just natural to me as a human being to be able to know those things. And we also philosophically call it the natural law because it's nature that we're knowing. But nature in the Aristotelian-Tomistic sense, not of the laws of nature that govern the plants but nature in the sense of the the isness of the thing the whatness of the thing
1: uh, it seems that you also I mean, you judge your moral action on circumstances senses a right so when those come into play on a natural level because you were talking about we draw on experiences but also what about the circumstantial, but that also seems to be natural in a lot of cases
0: yeah um, they'd be part of the mix uh, i think strictly speaking when we talk about the natural law, we're talking about things that we can kind of universalize, mm-hmm. where circumstances would be more details yes. about application and subjective
1: guilt. Yeah. yeah, Josh? Okay, I'm just trying to like synthesize what's going on, uh, understanding what like, to differentiate it. Um, it seems like for in our in our culture, what is naturally to understand isn't something that is being done. Right. In in many ways, not, not always, but in many ways, and so for me, when I think what's well, natural, it kind of also sounds like the word like, but simple, kind of right. feels like it goes with it, and it seems like that's not the case. So what we can naturally learn, it seems like, how much of what is naturally like. Uh, with natural law, how much of natural law actually you need? You know, revelation. You need a you know, super nat- the supernatural revelation to complement to direct it. Because it seems like if you look at the world without that supernatural revelation, what is natural is like pretty arbitrary to what people have found naturally. You know. So um, yes, I don't know. I guess that's what I'm saying. It's like, how much of this is every second is just this natural, this reason, this natural revelation, yeah. completely separated from the supernatural revelation, or is it like, how how do you look at that? And you got anything to throw into that? That's a, a good good question. Observation. I think Aquinas says like we need divine revelation because if we're left to our own devices of naturally coming to know things, we would take a very long time to get there. A few people would have the intellectual ability and capacity to do it, and then we arrive with an mixture of errors. Perfect quotation. Yeah, okay. that's just what I was going to
0: say. So, yes. Yeah, so St. Thomas's observation is all these things we're saying you could know. Um, well, let's take the example. Obviously, St. Thomas would have been aware of of the ancient Greeks. So, if we think of the Greek philosophers. Of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and so forth, well, all the great, wonderful, wise things they knew about the virtuous life. Well, how many of them were there? Well, there were only a few of those philosophers. So they were able to know those things, but actually, if it wasn't for the help of the Bible, actually, although you're capable of knowing it, not many people do. Then if we think down the centuries of time, how long did it take for the philosophers of ancient Greece to develop their schools of philosophy and come to their conclusion? Took a long time. So getting the Bible is kind of a shortcut, a speedy way of doing it. And then the the last point, even if we look to the Greeks, actually what they knew was mixed in with some pretty weird stuff as well. So they had a great vision of the lack of virtue of many details, but they also had some weird stuff in there as well. Um, so in order to know things quickly, in order that knowledge might be available to pretty much anybody, and to be not have errors mixed in, God gives us supernatural revelation. And you're right, so, so I've used the example of abortion. Well actually in our American culture, a vast percentage of our population would take it um, as a presupposition that it's an okay thing to do, so that they would start with that even before an analysis. So the ability to see that truth and to argue to it is very restrictive.
1: Well, I guess, yeah, so I think we also like homosexuality, like that's sure. expressed on a large scale to be a natural thing, you know? Um, and what happens when somebody is expressing that manner?
0: It is natural, it is natural. Right. And we'll look at that later in the course, but that's a good example, and the word natural gets twisted there. So someone says, well, I just naturally feel this way. Someone might even say, well, I was just born this way. Um, Or this feels natural to me. Well, natural in this strict sense is actually about what you are, what your nature is, beyond just what you feel as an individual. And so the natural law analysis would say, well, I'm sorry, but even if you feel inclined to do that with another man, that behavior won't fulfill you. You have been made in such a way. And we can look at your nature, the nature of your of, of, of sexuality, of human interaction, and see that real fulfillment, even if you feel otherwise, real fulfillment looks at like a different pattern of behavior from homosexual behavior. Okay, we're near the end, but we've got something very big to look at in our last the Magisterium. So again and again, I've been throwing in things here and we've had issues about, well, how do you know that? How do you interpret that? So, you know, some people say this, some people say that. How do you know? Well, the Magisterium gives us a voice from God to interpret that, to put the package together. So, page five of the notes. So, say the word magisterium comes from the Latin for teacher, um, and the magisterium of the church is the teaching voice of the church. Have you done ecclesiology? Or done this in your catechism course on the creed? Um, Difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary magisterium. So, the ordinary magisterium, the teaching of the church, the church is always teaching, always teaching, always teaching. There's an ordinary magisterium that's always going on. So, that's um, the Pope with his CDS, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, it's the bishops all over the world, it's even me right here. I'm a little I'm not an authoritative part of the magisterium, but but you know the church is just always teaching um, the ordinary magisterium. But then we also have specific moments, extraordinary moments, either when the pope, as I say, there, teaches ex cathedra from the chair, definitively, or the pope with an ecumenical council, and there being, you know, in history, 25 of those. So there actually aren't that many moments when that's happened. But these are the two ways the Magisterium functions, ordinary and extraordinary.
1: Okay,
0: Next, got a little section on the the role of the Magisterium. So his role is to teach, that's what the word means. His role is to remind. So Cardinal Ratzinger, as he then was, um, said as I quote there, the true sense of the teaching authority of the Pope consists in his being the advocate of Christian memory. So if we're wanting to take us back to the beginning, take us back to the deposit of faith, in a sense that's the authentic role, the the heart of the role of the magisterium, to be the memory pulling back from the beginning. But linked with that, it has a role in defining. So an issue comes up for debate, a new issue I give the example there, I B F. Well, Jesus said, Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. My authority to define is given by Christ to his church. Then he promised also, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will lead you to the complete truth. I, the church is guided in its teaching definitions. And he said, He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. Uh, It's truly Christ who teaches and his church teaches. I note that that teaching includes morality. So, divine revelation covers not only doctrine, but also how to live morality. And the promise of infallibility extends to both faith and morals. So, that phrase, faith and morals, appears both in the definition of papal infallibility at the First Vatican Council. And the definition of collegial infallibility at the Second Vatican Council, faith and morals. Because um, practically speaking, if it didn't cover how to live, it wouldn't be very useful. It wouldn't be much of a gift God had given to the church. Okay, the mm-hmm. magisterium has authority over interpreting the natural law. So the church is the guardian and interpreter of the natural law. And the natural law is known by reason, not by supernatural revelation, but the authority to interpret and define the natural law is held by the magisterium. So this is a bit odd, you might say, and the magisterium, a red bit, has authority over the green bit. The green bit is supposed to stand by itself, yes, philosophy is independent of theology. But theology has an authority over it to be able to say this is a valid philosophy or an invalid philosophy. To say of Immanuel Kant, this just is not a valid way of looking at the world. Okay, we've got 15 minutes left, and it's probably going to take me that long to outline the next point I want to make. The point I want to make is about uh, assent. So when I, I referred earlier to the example of saying, I believe you, to a friend. So a friend comes and tells you something, and you say to them, I believe you or I don't believe you. You assent to what they say, or you don't assent and when you assent to what they say you're assenting to them so um, if Max comes in and tells me that it, the weather is a nice day out there today now if I say yes it is a nice day because I've seen it as well well I don't believe him I'm just holding to the same thing myself, Yeah, that isn't faith, that isn't believing him. If I, in contrast, if I haven't been outside, so as happens here, you spend the entire day in the building and you never step outside, um, and I ask someone, was it a nice day today? And I've got no way of knowing for myself whether it was, other than, am I going to believe you? And there are some people that you just know aren't that reliable. Yeah? These are people we don't believe. And sometimes we might like someone we don't really find reliable. Um, And then there are other people that we don't particularly like, but we do find them reliable. Saying that that faith is about reliability, trustability. Do I trust what you are saying? Do I trust you saying? If I trust you saying it, this is human faith. But What we're thinking about with religion here is how that acts of faith happens in terms of God and the church. So if I believe it because Jesus said it, then that is what's called divine faith. Directly, he said it, I believe it, divine faith. Now, if his church said it infallibly, then that's called ecclesial faith. I trust the church because Jesus promised to guide the church, and I accept it, I believe it. Not because Jesus said it, but because the organisation Jesus promised to guide says it. You with me? The difference between... Divine faith, Jesus said it, therefore I accept it. And ecclesial faith, his instrument said it, and therefore I accept it. So those are different motives for accepting something. Now, um, as you will learn through this course, I love little charts. So I'm very proud of myself with the charts that I've given you a separate sheet for there. Um, So you want to pull that out. um, So it's actually in the notes as well, but I want you to be able to kind of look at it distinctly. Um, And what I've done in this thing is I've broken down the different ways we accept or reject something. Um, So um, let's look at the first column there. The type of act defining the doctrine and where the doctrine is contained. So there's a first category called irreformable. Um, all these terms and all these quotes are taken from what I refer to at the top there, the CDS 1998 doctrinal commentary on the concluding paragraph of the professio fide. So when you make, just before your diaconal ordination, the profession of faith and you sign it, the meaning of what you're saying is what this is all explaining. Um, So sorry, back to the table there. So it's an irreformable doctrine, which is one of the ways something is infallible. And these are, quote, These doctrines are contained in the word of God, written scripture, or handed down tradition, and defined with solemn judgment as divinely revealed truths by the ordinary or extraordinary magisterium. So, that's what it is. Why do you accept it? What's the motive of assent? the motive of assent is uh, the truth itself why do I accept it? because it is divinely and formally revealed so divinely and formally Jesus said it and the church has formally said that he said it um, the type of assent, what we call that is theological faith or divine faith i.e. we believe it with the full and irrevocable assent because God has said so and his word is true whereas if you dissent from that that's what's called heresy and then some examples that the commentary gives so all the articles of faith in the creed so um, Jesus descended into hell that's one of the lines of the creed isn't it Why do I hold to that? I hold to it because it's there in the beginning. It's in the deposit of faith. I know it's in the deposit of faith, in part because of bits in the Bible that refer to it, but because also the church has formally defined it as dogma. And therefore, I hold to it with that certainty that is theological faith. Okay, other examples. Various Christological dogmas and Marian dogmas. The doctrine of the real and substantial presence of Christ in the Eucharist. The doctrine of, on the primacy and infallibility of the Roman pontiff. And, a moral point for us in this course, the doctrine on the grave immorality of direct and voluntary killing of an innocent human being. So what's that saying is, This is something that is in the revelation at the beginning and the church has formally taught that it was revealed. So the church isn't just saying it's true. The church is saying it's true and God said it directly. So therefore I hold to it with theological faith. And I hold to it with certainty. Well, there are other things that are also certain, but I hold to it for a different reason because the church that Christ said, established teaches it formally in a definition but doesn't say God said so but just says it is connected with what God has said. So let's look at examples backwards. So connected by reveal... Connected to revealed truth either by logical necessity, so the illicitness of euthanasia, the illicitness of prostitution and fornication, and the preordination being reserved to men alone. The CDF says all of these are things that are connected to what was revealed in the beginning, and the church formally teaches them, but it wasn't directly said there at the beginning. And then historical necessity. So the legitimacy of the election of the Supreme Pontiff or the canonization of saints. Now, was Pope Francis legitimately elected? Well, the Bible can't answer that for you, yes? Because it happened long after the Bible. But if you can't have a definitive answer to that question, then you can't have a pope. So if God has set up popes, the papacy, then it must be part of the functioning of the church for the declaration of the pope to be an infallible act. Not of a divine faith, but of ecclesial faith, that I can trust the church's judgment. Okay, so those are the examples connected to revealed truth. If I dissent from that, whoever denies these truths would be in a position of rejecting a truth of Catholic doctrine and would therefore no longer be in full communion with the Catholic Church. Now that doesn't, canonically, that's not the same thing as being excommunicated, but it's saying you are not in full communion because you've refused to hold to one of these dogmas. The type of assent, the category is ecclesial faith, i.e. we give full and irrevocable assent to it because, because it's important here, because we believe Christ's promise in the Holy Spirit's assistance to the church's magisterium. To the left again, the motive for assent, why do I accept it? Though the truth is not or is not yet proposed as formally revealed... It is necessary for faithfully keeping and expounding the deposit of the faith, and the church teaches it. So you can't hold to the deposit. It doesn't make sense unless you have this thing that is connected to the deposit. So you can't hold to the papacy unless you hold to popes, legitimately elected, and their election being declared, which Okay, and then the last category there, the type of act, it's called a definitive act, which is also therefore infallible. And in this category is each and everything definitively proposed by the Church regarding teaching on faith and morals by the ordinary or extraordinary magisterium. Okay, those are the two categories I basically want to use. There's, there's lesser categories that are things that are non definitive. Um, that we're supposed to kind of politely give religious admission of will and intellect to, even though they're not articulated with the same precision um, or certainty. What I've been talking is quite technical questions. Interestingly, the the commentary doesn't give any examples. Um, So, any example I'm going to give you is me making a stab in the dark. Um, But early in the twentieth century, um, the Holy Office, as it then was, made various statements about um, the interpretation of scripture. Um, So, whether Um, whether the books of the the first five books were written by Moses or not. Um, And and similar other questions. Those are not solemnly defined, but they have been said by an authority in the church. And we give a religious submission of will and intellect, which isn't the same thing as holding to it with that certainty that is faith. Either ecclesial or divine faith. Okay, gonna call it a the day there. Um, covered a lot this morning. So, in summary, God speaks 2,000 years ago, that is handed down to us in a variety of ways, and the way theology uses those, broadly speaking, is how. Mor he uses the moral theology as well okay, let's close in prayer